we wanted to uh, kind of overturn some of the basic um, principles of uh, of role playing games. Um, so instead of uh, everyone expected to cooperate in pursuit of objectives, everyone is kind of at each other's throats at all times. Um, <clears throat> and so we were kind of purposely looking to subvert some of the tropes of uh, tabletop role playing games. Hi, welcome to the Daiku Podcast. I'm here with Greg Kostikian. Now, Greg is, uh, well, it's an honor to have Greg here because he has made such classic games as Paranoia, my beloved box set of Paranoia, the Star Wars D6 role-playing game, as well as Tune. And let me get this right because I don't want to mess this up. Winner of five Origin Awards, the inductee into Adventure Gaming Hall of Fame, the Maverick Award from GDC for tireless promotion of indie games, the author of a number of science fiction and fantasy books, as well as essays and books of the game design theory. I have no words I must design and then certainly in games. Greg, welcome. Thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. You've been in the industry so long that you are in the, uh, I guess, the primordial state of game design. I know I actually, one of my other ones that I've kind of researched is the Stainless Steel Rat that came out in the Aries magazine. Just just tell me, how did you get started in uh, tabletop role-playing games and game design in general? Well, when I was uh, a teenager, uh, there was a company in New York called SPI, which stands for Simulations Publications, Inc. And they had uh, open play tests on Friday night. Um, where you could come and play the games under development there, um, which was a good deal for them because they essentially got free uh, playtesting. And it was a good deal for those of us who were interested in their games because we got to feel like we were participating in their development in some sense. So <clears throat> basically, I, I hang around uh, the SBI offices, uh, playtesting games and making a nuisance of myself. And when I was 14, uh, the uh, workers in the warehouse went on strike. Um, and Jim Dunnigan hired me and a bunch of other teenagers to uh, be scabs and come in and, and do the work of assembling and shipping games. Um, and at the time, we were not even being paid in money. We were being paid in company script that we could take to the front uh, desk and exchange for uh, games published by SBI. Um, but at some point, uh, I had all of the games that the company published and started uh, selling the script to uh, other playtesters at, at, you know, like 80 cents on the dollar. And at that point, Dunnigan decided, well, maybe we should put these people on minimum wage. <clears throat> so <clears throat> so well, I continued doing that for a couple of years. And at 16, uh, he, uh, Dunnigan put me on the design staff as a kind of gopher, uh, making copies of playtest maps and uh, Xeroxing rules and that kind of thing. Um, I, and then I could just back up. Yeah, a second. Go, go ahead. When you were a kid, did you grow up playing games? Like, was that like just something that you were so passionate about that it just kind of led to you seeking out SPI? Um, I mean, to some degree, uh, we always had some board games around and and uh, played them. But I I was you know I was not uh, I think a particularly enthusiastic gamer. Uh, but I uh, I subscribed to some to Strategy and Tactics magazine, which was uh, uh, what. Uh, publication uh, uh, of uh, SBI, which published the game in every uh, issue. And I had a, a group of friends at my high school who were interested in these games as well. So I, I really got into it. So, Did you play like uh, Dungeons and Dragons and that kind of fair as well? 
Uh, sure. I, I mean, I was a board war gamer before Dungeons and Dragons was published, but I purchased it in 1973 when it came out um, at the science fiction bookshop in Manhattan. So, and uh, played a lot of it. So. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah. I'm just. I guess I'm wondering. Uh, you know, where is that kernel? Because you've become such a um, icon in the game design industry. I just. I was curious if it just like was just in something that you were born into that you just naturally were inclined to like. I love games. Uh, I mean, my mom was a radio producer and my dad was a lawyer. So there was, this, you know, it's not like there was a big family push towards games. And in fact, uh, I remember uh, in my 20s, my dad kind of suggesting to me that I had done this long enough and should go get a real job. <laughs> but, you know, that that's like, I guess, pretty normal. And so uh, you were the scab and then you started to being the gopher. And what was the next step for you in your career? Um, so they, uh, they basically, SBI had a system where uh, the designer of the game often had a second person called a developer uh, who would do things like uh, rewrite the rules, run play tests, uh, work with the designer to refine the design. Um, and they put me on a couple of projects, one with uh, uh, Rich Berg uh, on Conquistador. Um, and so I, you know, started working on design, although not my own original designs. And then uh, like a year later, they were doing a, a, they had a series of games called quads, which were uh, four games using the same base rule set with uh, special rules for particular battles and four battles set in kind of the same milieu. And they did a uh, North Africa quad and assigned me the task of designing a game based on the uh, Battle of Alamein, which was published under the name Supercharge, uh, that being the British name for the operation. Uh, of the Battle of Alamein. Uh, it was a terrible game, thankfully long out of print, <laughs> uh, but that was my first published game. Uh, and then I continued doing games for SBI, uh, partially on staff and partially as a freelancer uh, throughout uh, the remainder of uh, high school and college. Um, and then in 1982, they were taken over by uh, uh, TSR, um, which basically shut down uh, the office and shipped a few people to Lake Geneva to work for them, but most of uh, uh, most of the people at SBI were not particularly interested in uh, living in East Dogfuck, Wisconsin. <laughs> and so when did when did you get that kind of big break where you went, okay, this is something I can do as a career um, and you go, this is this is my lifelong path. Um, well, so I graduated from college with a degree in geology and did not particularly want to uh, go work for Exxon to uh, explore for oil or something. Um, and I contemplated uh, going back to um, grad school and, you know, becoming a career academic. But in the meantime, I just kept on designing games. Um, so I don't know that there was any point in which I said, I'm going to do this. Um, there were several years when I was essentially uh, a starving artist. Um, trying to make the rent by designing a whole bunch of games on a freelance basis. Um, and then uh, West End Games decided to expand its operations. And I, I did sell them a game as a freelancer, uh, which was uh, Bug-Eyed Monsters, um, and then went, went to work for them. And eventually became um, what I think now you would call chief creative officer. But at the time, I was director of R&D, uh, managing the uh, design department, the editorial department, and the art department. And did that kind of scratch your itch as far as your creativity, that artist in you that you said, I have a vision for a game and I have the ability to kind of combine all the pieces and make it into something that I want? Well, by that time, I already felt like I was kind of a, uh, 
seasoned professional because I'd worked on so many titles at SBI and as a freelancer. Um, so yeah, I, I felt pretty confident in my ability to uh, design interesting product. And Paranoia, that was your first game there at West End? Uh, no, the first game was uh, Bug-Eyed Monsters. Bug-Eyed Monsters, and I think um, uh, Web and Starship predated it as well. Um, but yeah, so I, I had actually designed, done a preliminary design of, uh, of Paranoia before I went to work for West End Games. Um, so the original idea for Paranoia was, uh, was Dan Gelber's. Uh, Dan was a local area games master. Um, and, you know, a lot of the, the, the prominent features of Paranoia are, you know, absolutely his, uh, like the, the computer, Alpha Complex, Secret Societies, and so on. Um, and I, I played it with him. Uh, and I said, you know, I, I, I think this is a great idea. Uh, would you mind if I went off and tried to, uh, you know, turn it into a polished professional set of rules and, and, uh, and sell it? Um, so I did a, a first draft of the game, and I submitted it to a bunch of companies, including GDW, um, and it was rejected multiple times. Um, and then when I started, when I was at uh, SBI, at some point, uh, uh, Eric Goldberg, who I had known previously, um, I, I mean, I met him when we were 14, uh, became uh, vice president at, at uh uh, Western games and said, you know, that game paranoia, well, let's take another look at it. Um, and so we, they signed a contract for the game and, uh, we started work on it. A, a, a lot of the character of the game, actually, um, I, I would ascribe to Ken Ralston who worked on it uh, as a freelancer for us. Uh, Ken later went on to a stellar career in uh, computer game. So uh, worked for Bethesda Softworks for many years and worked on both, uh, Oblivion and, uh, and, several other games for them um, and is now retired. So, but we, we still get together on occasion. Yeah, and Ken has obviously gone on to uh, careers similar to yourself. I think he's become an icon in the industry as well. Uh, I would call him uh, much more prominent than, than me actually, but that's <laughs> fine. Um, and then, uh, I mean, Paranoia too, uh, in the, the world of indie games, or not indie games, but role-playing games at that time, everything seemed to be fantasy, you'd have the occasional maybe superhero uh, game, but Paranoia really kind of took it in a different direction, which I really appreciate uh, probably at the time that like it was unique. And I think it really hit with a, like an impact as far as what could be done with role-playing games. Um, that is part of what we had in mind. One of our basic ideas was that <clears throat> we wanted to uh, kind of overturn some of the basic um, principles of uh of role-playing games um so instead of uh everyone expected to cooperate in pursuit of objectives everyone is kind of at each other's throats at all times um and so we were kind of purposely looking to subvert some of the tropes of uh tabletop role-playing games and i i think uh then shortly after um that success um star wars d6 came out and can you maybe walk us through the process of like between getting the licensing and then the creative aspects of that? Oh, sure. So <clears throat> Eric and I uh, both flew out to California to negotiate with uh, Lucas, Lucasfilm over the rights uh, to, to Star Wars. Um, <clears throat> neither of us had driver's licenses at the time, so we actually hired a limo to take us out to Lucas Ranch <laughs> uh, and wait for us to, to return. Um, <clears throat> Did they think and, that, uh, who are these guys showing up in a limo? The, who do they think they are? <laughs> well, um, so, but the other thing about this is uh, Lucasfilm owned LucasArts, which was a 
publisher of uh, computer games, mostly, but not exclusively uh, graphic adventures. And Eric and I both knew several people at LucasArts, including Noah Falstein uh, and Chip Morningstar. Um, and I think they were willing to vouch for us as being, uh, you know, smart, creative people. Um, so uh, we made a bid for the uh, the rights. Uh, Daniel Scott Poulter, who is the owner of uh, West End Games, was also the uh, also owned a company that at the time was the exclusive importer of the Bruno Magli line of uh, Italian women's shoes, uh, handbags, and belts, uh, and was a very rich man. Um, so he was willing to front the money for the license. Uh, we later learned that. Um, TSR had also been on the license and had offered more money, but they decided to go with us. Wow. <clears throat> so so uh, went back to New York and started work on the game. Um, the basic, I want, there were two basic principles that guided the design. One of them was that I wanted to kind of recreate the uh, cinematic fast action uh, and somewhat humorous feel of Star Wars. Uh, and the other was that uh, I, I wanted to avoid the thing that RuneQuest does where you top out uh, at some point by having, uh, you know, like 95% skill um, and really no route for advancement there. I wanted the um, continual, you know, potentially infinite advancement that uh, a game like D&D offers, um, which is where the, the D6 system really comes from. The idea that uh, you can just get more dice uh, as time goes on. And, West End um, and then the other side- Ghostbusters, of correct? Uh, West End had done Ghostbusters. So you kind of had that in-house? Yes. Uh, yeah, actually, Ghostbusters was designed by the Chaosium team, although uh, we developed it further and and published it. Um, so, and, and then the other thing is, I wanted to avoid uh, having classes as 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 D and D does, and instead having a, a, a kind of skill based system the way RuneQuest does, uh, to allow people to uh, have more diverse and more customizable characters. So, you know, that that's where that came from. Now, it's interesting to me that you said D six uh, because, and, and that is what West End turned that system into ultimately, uh, because I have always kind of been an opponent of generic systems. Um, because I feel that the design really should be tailored to the setting and the the uh, the aesthetic of the of whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish, um, which is what I was trying to do with Star Wars. Um, so once when they turned it into a generic system, I was kind of like, well, okay, <laughs> you know, I, I was long gone from uh, from West End Games by that time. So. I know that uh, I've, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of the D6 system and not necessarily for its genericness, but because it does play well cinematically. And I know that even in Savage Worlds, I know that uh, if you're familiar with that system has also been inspired by the, the D6 concept. So it's, uh, it's got legs and it still continues to this day. I think everybody kind of dusts it off every now and again and goes like, this is uh, an interesting um aspect of it and i don't know if you've seen all the iterations on the d6 system and primarily it's more iterations on your d6 system than the ghostbusters system although obviously they they're mm. in conjunction with each other so i don't know if uh, have you seen any of the iterations of it afterwards uh not really no <laughs> yeah. do you, well uh, out of curiosity now that, do you pay attention to the tabletop world anymore uh, or is it more have you moved into video games primarily um i i really don't pay much attention to role playing at this point um i do play a lot of board games so 
Okay. And so uh, during the Star Wars and the licensing era, like, were you a Star Wars fan growing up? Probably if you're a geek like uh, most of us in this realm that you probably well, sure. were a fan? I, I mean, I, I, mean I, I was a serious uh, science fiction reader. I mean, I subscribed to Analog and Asimovs and all those things uh, for, for years. And sure, of course, I, I, I enjoyed Star Wars. I liked Star Wars. Um, I also, for that matter, worked on a couple of uh, Star Trek games for West End Games. So. Well, and I think I, I would love to hear your kind of take on it as far as everybody really credits like the your game and all the source books that came out for keeping the franchise alive. And when, you know, they were dusting off um, the to do some novels, the Zon novels that uh, they came to you or looked at your source books and said, hey, like this is some good stuff. Yeah, I remember having a, a conversation with Timothy Zahn at a science fiction convention in which he uh, told me that he was using the, the source book as uh, material for, for, the, uh, for his novels. Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, credited in some circles anyway as being kind of the beginning of the extended universe. Um, obviously, we didn't anticipate that at all, um, but it's, it's kind of interesting. And when did the... Uh when did your relationship with West End Games come to an end and like, what was the next transition for you at that point? Um, so at that point I went off and decided I wanted to write. Uh, so I started writing uh, my first short stories uh, and my first novel um, and uh, also did some freelance work. Uh, Lucasfilm actually came to Eric and me uh, as they were producing Willow um, and asked us to license the Willow uh, game rights from them, uh, which was interesting because instead of going back to the company, they, they came back to the people they thought of uh, as being uh, creatively interesting. Um, so we made a kind of complicated three-way deal with uh, uh, Lucasfilm and Tor Books uh, to do a Willow game. Um, and we did that. And, you know, I, I, I actually think it's a pretty good game. Uh, but of course, the movie did not do as well as anyone had anticipated and the game sales were, you know, not that great. Um, at that point, um, my, uh, I, be I basically became a house husband for about six years. Um, my wife was, my then wife was an investment banker and made a lot more money than I did. So if one of us was going to uh, stay home with the kids, it made more sense for it to be me. Um, and so during that period, uh, you know, if you're taking care of small kids, your productivity is not at the highest level. Uh, but I did manage to get some writing done. And also Eric had made a deal with uh, Prodigy to do a uh, a game, a computer game on the Prodigy service called Mad Maze. Um, so I did a lot of work on that. Uh, I remember like slouching back in front of my computer with my infant child on my chest, uh, snoozing away while working on the game. And that was published in <clears throat> 1989 um, and is the first online game to attract more than a million players. Uh, so, hey. Was it just a natural evolution for you uh, to go into the video aspect of it and take what you had learned in tabletop in port it over to video? Um, sure, but, but uh, the other thing to keep in mind though is um, my wife was an investment banker. She That means she's tied to New York. That means I was tied to New York. Um, and once West End uh, moved to Pennsylvania, there was not a lot of uh, game development, uh, tabletop game development going on in New York. Um, and obviously there's just a lot more money in, uh, in digital games than there are, uh, is in tabletop. Um, so yeah, it made sense for me to move in that direction. And then uh, with that said, your move into the uh, video game industry, 
And you've been uh, like a huge advocate for uh, indie games and trying to disrupt the the systems, I guess the 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 sale systems and the the distribution systems. And uh, I've seen your talks on GDC a number of times. And uh, can you just talk about like how you envision what you would like to see in the video game world? And I know there's been a lot of lots of iterations of um, how games have been sold now mobile and uh, just internet based but can you just talk about like the challenges that you've seen for indie designers uh, for both tabletop and video uh, so the thing to keep in mind is that in the pre-steam era uh, games are almost exclusively sold at retail outlets um, and uh, you know a GameStop does not have that much shelf space um, and what happened and also over time the cost of game development has skyrocketed of triple game development um and the reason for that is as uh computing technology improves you kind of have to take advantage of the latest and the greatest if you're going to appear to be uh competitive with other product so uh uh Ralph Koster sometimes calls it calls this moore's wall um, as computing power increases, uh, the cost of game development increases. Um, and a consequence was that uh, the competition for shelf space meant that uh, fewer and fewer, that, that the, and, and the increase in budgets meant that uh, you had to, you know, the, the number of unit sales you had to make in order to make a game commercially successful also soared over time. And that meant that whole genres that had once been successful in the field, like graphic adventures and even real-time strategy games, fell off the cliff. Uh, and in the 90s and early aughts, we were facing a situation of uh, diminished creativity because uh, companies are not going to take a, a risk on an original design if they are going to be spending $100 million on a game. Um, and I felt that the whole field was becoming more and more stultified. Um, and became an advocate for indie games. And I, I, I used to say, we need to find a viable path to market for uh, games developed by smaller teams and at lower budgets. Um, and in fact, I founded a company to attempt to do that, which turned out to be a, a dismal failure. <laughs> uh, was that Game of Sutra? But, uh, no, it was uh, called uh, uh, Manifesto Games. Okay, okay. sorry. Um, and, um, but, but Valve cracked that nut. So we're now in a situation where there is a viable path to market for indie games. And it's extremely, it, it's not that it's an easy market to crack. Um, most indie games do not, in fact, uh, become commercially successful, uh, but some do. Uh, I've been playing a lot of Spiritfarer recently, which is an indie game, which has now sold more than a million units. Um, so I'm, I'm actually quite pleased um, that, that, you know, the goalposts have been moved and we do have uh, an outlet for uh, creative and innovative design in a way that we did not 20 years ago. Do you think now we've actually run into the other problem that there's almost too much to choose from that uh, every, it's so accessible now to make a game that how do you actually get um, in the mind's eye uh, for the audience? Uh, discoverability is a big problem, right? Um, and it, it does mean that indie developers need to uh, be savvy about building community and building a market, um, which is also why now there are publishers that uh, specialize in indie games uh, that can provide some of the, uh, the, the support along uh, marketing and sales lines that, uh, you, you know, somebody sitting at home with a computer and designing the, the game of their dreams is not necessarily gonna have those skills, so.
your your uh, essay, uh, I have no words and I must design. Um, the title somewhat matches the content. The content is kind of describing the structure of games and what games are. But the title itself really struck me as like, it seems like more of a, a call for you that you said, I have no words and I must design. Like, is it just a calling for you that you love designing? Um, yeah, I do. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is at the time I wrote that, uh, which was late 80s, I guess, uh, there was almost nothing uh, in print or available that discussed uh, game design as a, as a form. Um, and the, the, the title is basically, we don't, what I was saying is we don't really have the words to discuss what we do as designers. And here are some uh, approaches to that. Um, and uh, I launched a personal website very early uh, after the uh, internet was open to uh, commercial use. Um, and so in those days, if you, if you went searching for something about game design, you, you encountered that article. Um, so uh, lots of people have read it. Um, it's been republished in a bunch of uh, places and uh, is often used as one of the materials in game studies courses across the globe. So I, I have something of, uh, uh, I have some prominence in the game studies community as well as in uh, uh, the games industry. And then uh, Uncertainty Games, I think that was 2018 maybe that that came out? Um, 16 or 17, I think, yeah. Um, so actually the, the, that, that book is a result of, an, of a podcast interview. Um, with some people in New York, uh, I, th I think their podcast no longer exists, um, in which I, I talked about the subject. And uh, one of the people who was listening to who listened to the podcast was Jesper Yule, who is a game studies academic uh, and was editing a series of books for MIT Press. Um, and he said, would you like to write a book on the, the, what you talked about on the podcast? And I was like, sure. Um, so it, uh, it it's out there. It's not like I've made up a lot of money off of the book, but I'm surprised that it continues to sell and I do get checks from MIT Press every year. So, hey. And now that and your most re recent uh, jobs, have, are you doing consulting? Uh, are you back in that creative seat? Uh, at the moment, I am lead designer on a massively multiplayer online game being developed by uh, Playable Worlds. Uh, Playable Worlds was co-founded by Raf Koster, who's the designer of Ultima Online and Star Wars Galaxies, and by Eric Goldberg. <laughs> oh, you're back together, the team. <laughs> yeah, well, I have worked with Eric at five different companies over the course of, uh, of our careers. Uh, SPI, West End Games, Crossover Technologies, Unplugged Games, and now uh, uh, Playable Worlds. Uh, the product I'm working on has not been announced, and so I can't really discuss it. Uh, but I did, you know, it, it is an MMO. Yeah. Okay, cool. And uh, maybe as you're talking about, you know, working with Eric over all these years, how has the community been like, I know you speak at GDC once in a while or other um, um, conferences. And how, did, how have you seen the community change over the years from like, when you look back upon, you know, 16 year old working in the warehouse to uh, now is it has it matured? Is it more professional? Or is it still um, more of a you know, you get to meet people and it's uh, acquaintances and friends that make those connections? Um, acquaintances and friends are, you know, extremely important in the field. Uh, and actually maybe more important for someone at uh, my uh, level of experience and, um, and age. Um, 
so if you're you know 18 or, or if you're 21 and a recent graduate of a game studies program uh you, you probably are going to get your job by sending a resume somewhere rather than by networking um but for uh you know a 60 year old game designer is not something that is easy to find a job as uh, because the expectation is that the audience is younger and therefore you want uh, younger and more uh, uh, people more in tune with the zeitgeist. Um, so I'm actually very, uh, I feel privileged that I still can find work in the field. Um, and yes, uh, I, I mean, I know a lot of people in the industry and I've met a lot of people. Um, my first GDC was then called the Computer Games Developer Conference. Um, and it was founded by Chris Crawford, uh, was in the late 80s, and there were maybe 200 people there. Um, and that's, in fact, where I met Will Wright. Um, and, you know, these days, uh, GDC is thousands of people. Um, obviously, the whole industry is much larger. Um, and also, it has moved from being uh, the interest of a geeky few to uh, one of possibly the largest entertainment industry uh, in the world. So. Well, you've definitely uh, taken uh, an interesting path and you've been on the cutting edge throughout this whole time. And as you reflect upon your career as a senior designer now, um, do you have things that you're especially proud of um, at different moments, whether it's a game or like an initiative or, or something that you go, you know what, like now that I'm reflecting, this is what I'm just very pleased that I put out there for the world. Um, I, quite frankly, most of my digital games um, are mediocre. Um, making games is hard, and it's particularly hard when you're dealing with uh, publishers um, and the refractory nature of the of the form. Um, I have not actually published a title in I don't know twelve years. Um, I've worked on a whole bunch of different games, um, all of which have either been canceled. Um, or uh, failed on the market. Um, the, the, the last game that I was really enthusiastic about was a game I was working on for Disney Playdom called uh, Disney Dream Kingdom. Um, and it was essentially a Facebook game in which you got to build your own Disney Dream par theme park. Um, and I, I fell into this job and I was told this is what I was going to be working on. And I was like, oh my God, this is such an obvious surefire hit. Um, <clears throat> this is going to be great. Um, it turned out to be a problem. We worked on it for, <clears throat> so <clears throat> we were basically told by management that this is the crown jewels of Disney's IP and we have to do something really special. And we were, we knew that the new version of Flash was going to support 3D and uh, Unity said at the time that they were going to uh, be supporting export from Unity Engine to uh, Flash 3D. And so we said, okay, we're going to do it in 3D. It's going to look amazing. It's going to be something that uh, like no one has ever seen in a Facebook game before. Uh, the, the export to, to uh, Flash was not then working, but Unity had announced that it would be uh, available within a couple of years. <clears throat> so we started working the game. Uh, two years and $8 million later, uh, Unity said, oh, just kidding. Uh, so we had a code base um, that could not be uh, supported over the long term. Um, and we we pitched up our management on uh, pivoting to mobile, but they were basically now nah, we spent too much time and too much money on this. Um, so that was a, a major disappointment. Uh, but shit happens. Uh, probably two thirds of uh, digital game project project projects never see the light of day for one reason or another. So 
do you feel like when you're working in an environment like that where there's departments and and teams and yeah. and the creative and it's all kind of separated do you kind of miss the days that you could do like uh the stainless steel rat game and just like go i'm gonna write it we'll throw some art into the mix and you're just more at the grassroots level of just designing something <clears throat> there is a lot to be said for uh the, the ability to throw something together and that's one of the reasons why i do kind of miss tabletop design um <clears throat> but i do like working in a team um it, at least most of the time. I mean, there certainly I have been in toxic work environments at times in the past, uh, but I feel like uh, our current team is really good, really smart, really capable people. Um, and uh, I, yeah, it's fun. It's fun. Uh, it does mean that as a designer, it, the task is a lot different, right? So uh, <clears throat> you spend a lot of time writing specs. Um, we have a wiki with a spec for our game on it that's, uh, I don't know, hundred thousand words maybe um and then a lot of it is just monitoring what's going on uh having one-on-ones with my staff um participating in scrums uh, and one of the things i try to do is keep eyes on everything if i can't be in a meeting that's talking about a feature i want at least somebody from the design team to be there uh, so they can report back to me about what went on and a lot of what i'm trying to do there is just raise red flags it's like no that actually isn't the intent uh, know that that choice is going to uh, limit <clears throat> what we can do in future and we need to think about alternatives, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and then, of course, I spend a lot of time actually playing the game. Um, <clears throat> and part of the reason for that is, although we have a, a QA team, what QA is really for is saying, this is to spec, this isn't to spec, here are the bugs I found. Um, but when a designer tests, it's more along the lines of, actually, this kind of sucks. How do we fix that? <laughs> right? So you can't necessarily expect QA to uh, uncover gameplay issues. They will uncover uh, bugs, and they will uncover uh, whether the thing performs the way it's supposed to perform. So, so design needs to be involved in that process as well. For a young designer, and I mean, you've probably worked in enough companies now to kind of see the best path forward. And I'm sure there's many, many paths forward. But do you see uh, pitfalls that you always see young designers kind of fall into, or do you have any recommendations for them? Uh, yeah, yeah. So one one of the pitfalls, of course, is just to um, you know what you like, but the audience you're aiming for may not be you, um, and therefore you have to uh, try to resist your impulses in some cases. Um, I mean, the the Disney game I was working on was aimed at uh, a middle aged female audience. Um, and there is nothing more humbling than watching a, a test of your game uh, by uh, people who are not core gamers and realizing that, no, they really don't get it. And we have to figure out uh, how to uh, make them understand what the game is about. So, um, so that's one. Uh, the other is that uh, game development programs these days do a pretty good job at exposing people to uh, design thinking by people like me and Raf and uh, Jesse Shell uh, and so on. And they also do a pretty good job of teaching them uh, basic technical skills. Um, so that uh, like I have hired uh, in the last, uh, I guess, 18 months, uh, two really junior people, uh, one straight out of uh, University of Utah's uh, uh, master's uh, program uh, and the other out of uh, UT Dallas uh, as a, a bachelor's program. Um, and 
they are they they're more technically capable than I am. And that's great because one of the things we need to do is script a lot of game systems and they can get in there uh, and do that uh, in our scripting system. Uh, and I can do that as well, uh, but I'm far less uh, fast and efficient uh, as they. Um, so the other thing I would say though, is if you are a, an aspiring game designer, <coughs> um, I would advise you to eschew uh, specific game pipeline to industry programs like uh, DigiPen or uh, Full Sail, and instead go to a more conventional university that does that does offer game development programs, um, and uh, you know study both uh, graphic development tools as well as uh, uh, programming uh, in addition to your game studies things. Because one of the realities of the industry is that we work people really hard and a typical game industry person burns out within about five years. Um, so you want to have the technical skills to be able to make transition to uh, another field uh, if that winds up happening to you. Um, Do you think whereas if you go to one of these game industry specific programs, it's like you're, you're, you're tracked. It's hard to, hard to break free. Do you find, um, you know, you talked about uh, some toxic environments and that kind of thing, and I know there's like long hours and tight deadlines and that kind of thing. Do you feel that's, and the burnout, and do you feel that's sustainable or do you think there's a better model out there? Uh, there absolutely is a better model. And I think the industry is changing. I, I think uh, that uh, kind of uh, overwork thing is less and less uh, the case. Uh, it still happens, absolutely. Uh, but I think it's, uh, I think the industry has realized that uh, it's not really sustainable or, uh, or it, frankly, even, uh, even worthwhile. Um, you know, it, you can say to people, we're going to be working for 60 hours and for maybe two weeks that will improve your productivity, but then people are just going to get tired and it's going to reduce your productivity. Um, I have never been involved in a game project that didn't involve some level of crunch. Um, and I, I believe that some level of crunch is acceptable if it's along the lines of, we have a major deliverable to our, our, our publisher in three weeks. Uh, we need to work really hard to uh, wrap up the loose ends and uh, deliver something that uh, will, will shine. Um, but that's a couple of weeks of crunch. It's not like unending crunch or months of crunch at a time. Um, and so that's what we try to avoid. But I think part of the reason that industry attitudes are changing, though, also is, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm the oldest person at my company, but uh, our, our average age is not in the 20s, right? So people have real lives, people have jobs, uh, have kids, um, and therefore, if we want to retain talent, we also have to start treating them better. Um, at uh, my company, we have actually had one period of crunch as we were working towards a demo that we needed to use to uh, demo to show to potential investors. Uh, but in general, we are anti-crunch and try to ensure that uh, people don't overwork. In fact, you know, we will specifically tell people. Sometimes people do it because they're just enthusiastic, right? And they'll they'll put in hours on the weekend or uh, extra hours. But we actually try to tell people, no, take the weekend off. You know, take care of yourself. And is your workspace now, like, especially with COVID, is it now all digital, like people are working remotely? Well, uh, okay, let me let me talk about that a little bit. 
but in uh, 2009, when I shut down uh, Manifesto Games, I decided I wanted to continue working in the industry. And uh, New York is almost a desert as far as uh, game development is concerned. Um, so I have moved around the country a fair bit. I was in San Francisco for three years working for, for Disney Playdom. Um, I worked for Boss Fight uh, in McKinney, Texas for a year. I worked for Backflip Studios in uh, Boulder for a year. Um, and when Raph was founding the company, he so Raph is himself an eminent game designer, and in fact, one of the uh, people I look up to, I think he's a better game designer than I am, uh, but he also wanted to be CEO of the company so he could control the process and the project more explicitly. And that means he spends a lot of his time on administrative tasks and dealing with the board and investors and this kind of thing, so he could not be hands-on uh, in a design capacity. So when he was founding the company, he was looking for someone uh, to, to, to fill that role. And, uh, you know, I've, I've known Raph for years and uh, I, you know, one of the things was you had to be willing to move to San Diego in order to do the job. It's like, okay, fine, I've done this before, I'll, I'll do that. So in uh, January of 2000, uh, 2020, I moved to uh, actually to uh, Escondido, North, North San Diego County um, for the job um, and found a place there. And, you know, I figured I was going to be there for uh, at least a few years. Um, and then in March of 2020, uh, Raf said, well, we're going to be working from home now for the foreseeable future because of COVID. So I could, my choice was to stick, stay in my tiny little cottage in Escondido all by myself or fly back to my apartment in New York, which I have kept all this time. It's uh, rent stabilized and I had a daughter in local schools and it's in one of the best school districts in New York. Uh, so I flew back to New York to be with my wife and daughter. Um, and so it's, you know, it's been remote since. Um, and in some ways I actually like this because I get to work three hours before everyone in California and I have uninterrupted non-meeting time to get stuff done uh, before the inevitable onslaught of video meetings. Um, so yeah, uh, and at this point, whether or not, I mean, we actually gave up the office in, uh, in, uh, in, in San Diego uh, a little while ago. Uh, and, you know, we've talked about if, when we're gonna reopen the, an office there and I imagine it will happen. Um, but I also don't know whether or not I'll be going back to San Diego at this point. Um, it, I mean, it seems to be working pretty okay. Uh, now, I would never have said that before. I would always have said, you want your designer sitting with the team. Um, it's just a, kind of an essential role and you, you, they need to be with the team. So maybe I will go back. I don't know. We'll, we'll see how it works out. And what, what do you kind of see in your future as far as, are you going to just keep designing forever or do you ever envision a, a retirement, so to speak? Um, my guess is that this is my last job. Um, I mean, we won't be launching the game for a couple of years um, and I will want to be involved in live ops as well. Uh, but at some point I will probably say hmm, time to go. Um, but, but, you know, retirement for me probably means I go home. I, I write some, <laughs> some books. I, uh, I work on some board games. Right. So, and, and maybe even uh, do a, a indie game of my own. So. I mean, that would be very I mean, short, short of senility. I, I don't really see any reason to stop. Yeah, maybe I'll get back to uh, tabletop role-playing games. It'd be interesting to see uh, that as well, as that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of where my kind of heart and passion lies myself. But um, anyways, uh, you know, I think it's been uh, really informative to have you as a guest on the show today. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, I just want to thank you uh, from probably many, many uh, game players over the years and aspiring game designers that have been influenced by some of your words and wisdom and uh, hope uh, that they 
get a little bit more from you today. And uh, I just really appreciate you joining me today. Uh, my pleasure.